from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. It's a Tiny House Podcast. I'm Perry. I'm MJ. And this is Mike. We are energized. That pause there seemed like we're not, but we are actually. <laughs> we're very excited about it's being on show today. Ball of energy. Exactly. Michelle, I noticed on Instagram that your perch is done. It is done. I'm so excited. I'd be excited too. Yeah. So I'm at the point now where it is will be available for rent um, a couple of weeks. And I'm I'm... Embarking. So it is, it is available for rent. Yes. As, as far as the show coming out. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. It is available for rent. It's how, available. How much is it? um, I'm posting it for $70 per night on Try It Tiny. And then oh. I'm posting it for $75 a night on Airbnb. With that being said, however, by the time this show comes out, that may have changed because I'm, we're in the middle right now of off season. I am. And by the time the show comes out, it'll be on this season. But nonetheless, um, it's been very almost a little unnerving because it's kind of like starting a new business being a short-term rental hostess and all the stuff you have to learn yeah. and all the supplies you got to get together. Yeah. And it's really weird. I've got my hostess hat on and it's not comfortable yet. How are you going to keep your whites white? Um, hiring a laundry service. Nice. And you um, said that you said the pricing was 70 for one and 75 for the other. Right. Was one come without toilet paper? What's up with that? No, I just wanted to, um, I'm a huge fan of Maggie and what she does, so try it tiny. Okay. And so I wanted to give her, um, I'll, I'll always post the rates on try it tiny at $5 cheaper than Airbnb because of course, if someone finds the listing and they want to yeah. save some money Perfect. and I can actually give back to the tiny house community that way as Very well. Cool. So uh, we do have a pet cleaning fee. Of course, we have the traditional $30 house cleaning fee, but um, and that won't change regardless of on season or off season, but. Yeah, I'm super excited, but really, excited. really nervous and really, really stressed. Yeah, like cool. I signed up on the Facebook group, the Airbnb host Facebook group, and you get to hear all the nightmare stories from all the other Airbnb uh-huh. hosts. Um, did you know Airbnb actually has an extortion policy? What is that? that it's crazy. So how it works is, for instance, the story came out that someone had stayed in, in a home and had broken a bunch of stuff. So the host had reached out to the guest and informed the guest that they were going to have to pay for all these pretty valuable things that they had broken. The guest then told the host in really long, detailed way, if you make me pay for what we broke, here is the very excruciatingly long and horrible review I'm going to post of your house. Because as you know, Airbnb, as you can imagine, yeah. it's all about reviews. Yeah, yeah. So they basically said, fine, we'll pay for it, but this is what I'm going to post on your review. So Airbnb, all of this conversation takes place behind the scenes in the Airbnb platform. They have an algorithm in which they go out and look for <clears throat> language that sounds like extortion. <clears throat> and that's what they did. They nailed it. And they said, they contacted the guest and said, we're going to charge you for this, number one. Number two, you are not going to be able to post a review of this host good for them and number three this is your first and only chance do it again you're off the platform but again it's really weird because those are the types of things you don't know until Mm -hmm. you're in the middle of it and you're like oh crap exactly people were talking about you know pets laying on your bedding 
you need to set up your bed such that you're not going to wash a comforter between every single turn, right? Oh yeah, you don't want to do that. Exactly. So, you know, anyways, it's it's just been super exciting, but I'm so stressed, <laughs> like almost over the top um, of trying to get all the details right. I don't want to get any negative, obvious reviews right out of the gate. Right. I want to make sure that all my ducks are in a row, all right. my all my pillows are, you know, white and all my towels are monogrammed. And how did, I'm just curious about that Airbnb circumstance. How did, what happened in there that all the stuff got broken? Um, the host had surmised that they were having a party. So it was, first of all, it was a waterfront. It was a floating home. Mm-hmm. And the host had surmised that they were jumping out of one of the windows, the t- second floor window into the water or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And so she was surmising that maybe the, the water was splashing up because basically it was a bunch of pots and vases and stuff on the deck itself. Mm. Oh, like flower pots. And right. Things? Yeah. Oh, okay. But you know, they were a hundred, 150 bucks oh, yeah. a piece yeah, yeah. and there were several of them anyway. So, mm. but it was, a, again, it was a really interesting to see the people posting um, about, Hey, someone just left four days ago and they haven't left a review. What should I do? Mm. Um, or, you know, I said, we have a no pet policy and I just noticed my guest passing my front window with a pet on a leash. <laughs> what should we do? You know, so there's that. Um, obviously you want to be a gracious hostess. Obviously you want to, you know, but at the same time, it's like, uh, no, I'm not going to get, yeah. you know, a lot of great advice. Um, Airbnb also has a new cool policy where when your ex is called a valid, it's an additional step of validation you scan the front side and the back side of your driver's license and you send that off to Airbnb. And then they also make you, during the course of that logon, take a picture of yourself on your computer. Oh, that's a great idea. So that hmm. Airbnb now gives you that additional check mark, yeah. that additional validation that the person that logged on and we have the driver's license yeah. number, we have the back of the driver's license, we have a picture of them on their computer. Yeah. We now can validate that that person is who they say. Mm. Um, you only have to do that once, but again, as a hostess now, I have the opportunity to say, yes, I require that or no, I don't, to give me the additional level of security yeah. of who's coming to stay in my gonna, house. Yeah, yeah. That's smart. So it's interesting, again, to, to, to go from a consumer-based perspective of who and what Airbnb is and what they do and don't do to protect their, their homes mm-hmm. um, to the reading the contracts and hearing the host. It's been, it's been super fun, mm-hmm. but I'm also so nervous. Very cool. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. We're speaking about the Airbnb, Airbnb community and our, our most, our guest today is responsible for, as far as I know, generating one of the most successful tiny house communities going on around, maybe around the world. Other than that one that we discovered in Sweden, was it? That's been around oh, for... Oh, like that decades the, old. Yeah, decades old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, community mm-hmm. of original OG tiny houses. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, our guest today is uh, responsible. Not He's not solely responsible, but his public company is responsible for developing um, these tiny house communities. And I actually visited, I have to say, the, the, the first tiny house that I walked into when we were at the Jamboree mm. in Colorado was a Sprout home. And I was really impressed with the look of that house. And so um, I would like to welcome our latest guest to the show, um, Alan Kirchhoff, who is representing Sprout today. Alan, welcome to the show. Good morning. Yay. I, 
I did not understand what he said just then. That's what I heard. He's like, wow. Charlie, Charlie Brown's parents are here. Exactly. I'm excited because, you know, I get to finally be on, on your guys' show, MJ's show. I got to know MJ at the, the Tiny House Jamboree, and, and I'm like, man, I would love to be on, on her show, and lo and behold, I got a call, and so very excited. Your wish is our command. The big league. Da, da, yeah. Moving on. Yeah. So yeah, we we've <laughs> met several times, but I think what you, I think what you we also had a chance to sit down and um, chat. We'll say uh, in Texas this year, right? Yes, that's the one when we were in Dallas. Yeah, in that's Arlington, what we went. Yeah, Arlington, Texas. We were talking, right? I was. Yes, I, we I, I, I'm hearing I, some I euphemisms told, here. I was told about you, and I was like, "Man, I need to get to know MJ because she's known in the in the industry, the tiny house industry, as the as the as the lady that gets things done." Right on. So, oh, thank you. Very cool. So, Alan. Um, Speaking what, of people who get things done. Yeah. Exactly. Who are we talking about? Oh, okay. So, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what is the latest news at Sprout? Well, we've got some, some, we've got some great news we can share. Um, as I was kind of telling uh, you guys a little bit before, is you know, Sprout is a over-the-counter pink slip public company um, traded on, on... We're not on NASDAQ yet. We're just over-the-counter. So the best way to describe it is penny stock. But it, it, when you're in a public company like that, you can only share things that have been announced and... and to the public, so we do have some great announcements. We uh, just announced last week, uh, towards the end of December, I would it's a better in December. We announced a 275 um, development of tiny houses, two developments actually, in in and around Austin, Texas. So the, the first development is these will be all tiny houses. 400 square feet or below. Um, the first development's 80 units, and it's going to be right in South Austin, which is literally 10 minutes away from downtown downtown Austin, which is incredible. Um, incredible opportunity. And the second one is in Kyle, Texas, which is just maybe about 20 minutes from, 25 minutes south of Austin. You guys are familiar with Texas. It all kind of runs together when you when you go down the corridor of 35. Yeah. Kind of all the towns start running together from Dallas all the way down to San Antonio. And Kyle is just a, is a small town kind of in between San Antonio and Austin. And that one's slated for, for 200 um, tiny houses. If it's successful, it could go up to 400 tiny houses in that, in that particular development. But we're starting with 200. Uh, we're working with a developer. Um, I don't know if you guys were aware, but Sprout had made a big shift um, in, in kind of our business strategy. Uh, I would say at the beginning of last year, uh, Rod, the CEO of, of Sprout, had we had come to this conclusion that we wanted to move towards um, away from retail, really, um, where we're selling maybe one or two units, uh, but and moving towards how do we become influential in development? We saw this big shift with developers starting to come to the table and ask questions about tiny houses, seeing the market moving in that direction, and starting to think of how they could create uh, tiny house uh, communities. 
um, with a lot of open space, a lot of amenities, walkable walkable places. How do you get closer to the downtown, some of the urban urban cities? And so we made that big shift, and and so we've been working mainly with developers um, for the last year. We're, I'm surprised that, that that was just a year ago. It seemed to me that when we were at the Jamboree in Colorado, there was a community already. Actually, I think there were two communities that Sprout had, in, at least in the, on the drawing board. Yeah, so, so the one that we were working on it was um, Salida, Colorado, I think is what you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, Salida, Colorado, that was um, probably about a year and a half ago, if you're correct. It was in that kind of prior that August timeframe um, that Rod started working with Salida, Colorado on um, putting in a, a community of 200 homes. And what was interesting about that is that was a straight sprout development. So when we talk about developments, you know, sprout has moved towards let's do our own developments, but also let's work with developers. So the one that you're thinking of in Salida is one we took the ball and we said, hey, we're going to go do our own development because we believe this is where it's going. And so, you know, Rod had that forethought to say, let's go and find a piece of land. Let's work with the city in Salida, Colorado. Let's make some, see if we can get some, some variance changes, which are issues when you start building, you know, tiny house development. And we did. Well, some of the things that came out that were very interesting about that is, is we did a water study that actually showed, this is, this is a really kind of big thing. We did a water study that showed that six tiny houses use the equivalent of water of one three-bedroom, two-bath house. So, wow. Yeah. And the I reason bet. that's huge is because when you get into zoning uh, with cities, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have water taps in there and they, and their water taps are expensive, which makes tiny houses become, in my opinion, unaffordable or unattainable because of the land. And then you got the permits and then you got the taps and those type of things. And, and it makes it, it prohibits really the development of tiny houses in, uh, as a solution for attainable housing in the future. And, and we had that study and came out that way. And, and so what this, City of Salida did is they gave us a variance that allowed us to put on one tap six homes, which was was very big. And it's 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 kind of the things that are going to have to take place in the future for this to become a, a real viable solution, which we believe it is um, for urban areas or for small towns. So, Alan, let me let me jump in here for a second because I I think I know what you're talking about, and our listeners may not. So, I'm going to try and say what you said in other words, and tell me if I'm right, okay, or if I'm accurate. Okay. So, so because we did some looking into these community developments too, and so apparently, when you have a a water tap, as you're calling it, in in a development plan, the city assesses fees that are necessary to afford essentially that tap, and those can be in the tens of thousands of dollars or more. And so if you're absolutely, and so if you're putting one house on that tap, which is typically what's happening, the the cost of the house has to bear the cost of that tap. But now, what you're saying, I think, is that because of your study, you're you're showing to the city that you're actually serving multiple homes, six of them, with one tap, and so the cost of that tap should be three grand, not twenty. Exact? Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. <clears throat> you're spot on. Is if you know if you're building a 
fifty to sixty thousand dollar house, and then you've got a twenty thousand dollar water tap, right? You know that you've got to absorb into that house cost. Um, as a developer, it starts. It doesn't make sense, and so that's why you see developers building big homes because they've got to they've got to absorb all those costs, and the only way they can do that is to build a bigger home. And, and so it really is a disincentive for people that want to come in and build smarter, smaller, simpler homes simply because there's a lot of costs associated with that are, that are fixed costs that that developer has to figure out how to absorb into the overall to make, to make the margin. You know, I, I, things that I've learned over on the development side is that yeah, people don't. People think that developers make a lot of money. They don't. There's not a lot of margins in there, and so when you when you have to bring all those costs in, and you're trying to create something that's more what I call attainable housing, I, I try to stay away from the word affordable because of what connotations and perceptions that brings. But I'm I'm trying to figure out, and my passion is how do we get to attainable housing that makes sense for what I'm calling the missing middle, which is, is homes in the range of, uh, let's just say 60,000 to 150,000 in, you know, in urban areas. Now that changes depending on where you're at, right? If you're in a small town, then, then the housing prices go down. But if you're in a, let's just say Austin, Texas, and the reason why this development that we've just secured with this developer is, is so big is we're talking about houses that are going to range from uh, tiny houses all in are going to range from, you know, 80 up to, um, well, we've got, there's one other uh, builder that's building in that development and his homes are up to 140, but, you know, Sprout homes are going to be sub 100. So, and you talk about, you know, in Austin, Texas, where the average home, the starter home in city limits is three to $400,000. And, and so that changes the game for affordability and attainability is if you can actually start to build really, um, really cool development where you're bringing in all these elements of, of you know, close proximity, walkability to places, um, to your market, you know, having open spaces, having um, shared spaces, having even shared office spaces or, you know, flex spaces within your community. Those are all the kind of things we're seeing uh, the market moving to, which is exciting. So, so this is interesting what you're describing. So the, the, so our, so one of the challenges I see in a development such as what you're describing is the perception among mainstream Americans, just using the United States that, okay, so you, your company is offering this new alternative housing thing, but this housing thing is also being used to house the homeless. And I don't want to be seen I have an image to keep up. I don't want to be seen living in something that homeless people are living. It seems like I would want to aspire to the type of house that the American dream is all about. And you're asking me to live in something that's a fifth of a size of what the average house is. And it here, I hear, I think what I hear you saying, Alan, is that to kind of combat that you're offering a, a lifestyle experience with all these other amenities wrapped around the idea of a smaller living space. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, you know what was interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So you're you're spot on in in that that idea is that 
one of the perception in the market is that if you talk tiny or if you talk small or if you talk houses on trailers, um, you know, a chassis, so, Mm -hmm. you know, tiny houses built to a chassis, people's perception of that is exactly what you're, what you're talking about. There's a lot of negative perception around that. So Mm -hmm. for example, if you go and talk to the city, if you go talk to county officials and you bring up a tiny house, the only thing that they know is mod is mobile home or they, they think that way. So they, they have a perception, a negative perception of what a tiny house is or what a, a small home is and the quality that are being, you know, that's being built. You know, these houses that we're talking about, as you've seen is they're high quality homes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, for sprouts, for example, we built a 30 to 50 year, you know, materials. The houses that we're building are, uh, are going to be around a long time. They just happen to be on a chassis, um, which throws people off because the, there's lots of reasons, right? That's why the industry is changing so fast um, from what we started four years ago to where we're at today. It's light years different. Yeah. And, and so... You know, it's this negative perception that people have of the idea of the words that I just used, affordability. Right. They think tiny houses are, 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 are you know, mobile homes. Right. Yeah. It, those are the type of things that we're trying to get around. And, you know, counties and cities have, have um, zoning requirements for mobile homes. Well, if you go talk to a city official today or if you go into the city permitting and you say, hey, I want to do a tiny house development in your city, they don't even have a checkbox on their application for that. We just ran into this. So in Austin, they checked the checkbox that they had to use was mobile home. Yeah. They didn't know what they didn't have it. So it's like we're doing something that's still in such an emerging market that even the systems and the bureaucratic side of the thing and <clears> even <throat> how they permit, they don't even have that language in those things. Yeah. So I see that all changing in the future. And it's going to take some of these developments like the one we're doing right now that's going to help push that. Yeah. And, and when it starts pushing that, people are going to understand that this is not a fad. That's the other thing, guys, that we ran into when I started four years ago when I was having conversations with, with people was they said, you know what? Tiny houses are a fad. It's going to go away. And we said, no, it's not. It's actually a movement. And this is what people want. Yeah. And so they want to move back to more of a simple life simple living they want smaller you know they want you know they want open space they want community they want relationship these are the things the word you used experience they want experience where they're living and so that's kind of the push we're seeing but we're still so far ahead of um of the cities and the counties that's that's been the battle but each time we do a development or each time we have these kind of conversations um things change. I'll give you another example that we just had. Uh, we just was on a conversation with a, we had a city and we had a county call us a planning, a planning and zoning director call us from um, Idaho it was a community, a county in Idaho. They called us up and they said, Hey, we've seen you guys done some things with, with developments. We need your help. We're trying to rewrite our, zoning because we want to attract um 
we need to bring in workforce housing. We we believe that tiny houses are going to be a part of our solution for uh, our workforce community because they can no longer live in our town. They have to they have to commute thirty to forty miles, and and we need to find a solution. And so we started working with them, and we met with their we met with their county commissioner, and we started telling him what was needed in the development. We started sharing these water studies. And so things like that's happening every day. Nice. We're having those kind of phone calls. Those weren't happening four years ago. I expect in the next year to two years, you're going to see another huge jump in this, in this industry as far as cities and counties uh, coming on and changing their, their zoning to allow for, um, for these kind of, these kind of developments. I want to get back to that in a minute, but Michelle has a, has a question. Oh yeah. I have a question actually. And a comment before I get to my question, we were talking about the tap, um, you know, the, the price for a tap. I'm going to dumb down the conversation one more level for the listeners. Basically, if I understand correctly, the a tap or paying for a, a tap is actually a process. So that is the privilege to be able to tap into the existing water supply or water system that's, you know, maybe at the local road. So when it comes to water yeah. supply, there's basically two options. You can either get a well or you can pay for a tap, which is actually a process of having the opportunity to tap into the existing water supply. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that we understood that a tap wasn't necessarily a, a well or something entirely different. Um, so my question no, for you... I'll, I'll add a one more thing to that, sure. to that, Michelle, is that if you are a developer and say you're there is a water tap, there is a water, let's call it a water line. Right. Say there's a water line that's available and maybe that water line is, maybe it's a hundred feet away. Maybe it's a half a mile away. Right. I mean, it could be that way depending on where you're at. It might be right. It might be across the street. Um, it might be on your side of the street. That all makes a difference because where the city sees that if you're working with a city is if you want to, tap into that water line if it's next to your if it's next to you you pay this is what's interesting about the cities not necessarily i don't think it's this way across the whole united states so you'd have to talk to your city or your county on on this but for example here in austin if i've got a water line that's across the street and i want to develop on the other side a lot i've got to not only pay for the tap the the privilege as you described it to to tap into that water and use it i've got to pay for any any infrastructure that i need to bring it across the street sometimes they make you pay for the next the, the next lot over so if there isn't a close enough tap where they have to come in because they physically have to come and put a tap on that water line sometimes they'll even ask you to, if they come out, they're going to put a tap in that's for the next two properties. So if you're one property and that next one, lot next door to you is not developed and you're not buying that and you're the first one in, they're going to make you pay for both those taps. So the next guy in, he actually benefits from that. But you as the first kind of first developer in, you've got to actually cover those costs. And so those are the type of things that start adding up that just doesn't make sense when it comes to development 
Um, especially if you have, as, as you guys referenced before, if you have to put one house on that, on that property. And that's why, you know, when, as a developer, what they're going to, what they're looking for is that they can take a one acre in a, in a city environment. And instead of putting a one, you know, 3000 square foot house, they can put 10 tiny homes on it. That's what they want to do because it, it makes sense because then they can you know, spread that across 10, 10 homes. So, um, that cost. so my question is, um, so we've talked about the sort of negative connotation associated with tiny houses on wheels. We've talked about the challenges of overcoming people's perceptions um, and, um, you know, of them either as, as homeless um, opportunities or unsafe, you know, unsafe housing going down the road. Um, we've kind of touched on that a little bit. So you have this huge chunk of land um, south of Austin, big enough for what, you, what you're what you considering 200 to 400 tiny houses. Why put them on wheels? Why not put them on foundations sort of similar to the, the uh, community that they built in Detroit? As I understand it, actually building a foundation or building a slab is actually much less expensive than buying a chassis from your average tiny house trailer manufacturer. Um, so yep. why, why, why are you uh, either encouraging them on wheels or why are you planning on putting them on wheels? Well, so that is an excellent question and something that we've been having conversation around, uh, around for the last couple of weeks is, so, so back to that development that you mentioned. So we are the exclusive, that contract, contract reads that we are the exclusive builder for that. That actually has a developer slash landowner that that is actually doing the development on that property. And in there's what's interesting about wheels to foundation is it goes to it goes to several things. So it goes to zoning, right? So in zoning, if you put it on foundation, it's considered residential, full time living. If you put it on wheels which you guys all know, it's RVIA certified, so or ANSI 119.5, which is, which is a step above RVIA certification when it comes to building. Those are on chassis, and in definition, a house built on wheels or a chassis like that is supposed to be, and it's built under RVIA code or certification of standards of building, um, it's only supposed to be lived in by definition um, six months or less a year, right? Right. Because it's yeah, it's not supposed to be lived in permanently, which we all know that we do. But but it's not built to that code. So where that plays into is the biggest hurdle we have in the tiny house industry to making this a a, a really kind of an what I would call a a very big market opportunity is financing. It all comes down to two things, zoning and financing. And so if you, if you have wheels, you got to fight the zoning because the zoning wants single family to be on foundation. And the only place you can put houses on wheels is in an RV park or, or in Austin, Texas, it's, you know, it's industrial or campground. It has to be zoned campground or industrial. It can be zoned um, RV park, uh, that type of thing. But if you get into multi-family zoning or, or a single family three. I'm just kind of giving you stuff that I know about Texas. So those are the, 
you got single family, you got multifamily. To, uh, to do multiple tiny houses on a particular property, if it's in the city, it has to be multifamily, three, four, five, or six. Okay. And that, all that means is six, says you can have six units per acre. Correct. Type of thing. Um, so the, the zoning is an issue and the financing. Where I, MJ, where I think we're going is Sprout, we're going to do both because there'll be, we, we do both right now. So there'll be opportunities where the development may not be in the city and it's county or it's an RV kind of designated zoning that, that makes sense to put them on wheels because people like the idea of flexibility. I mean, they want small, simple and sustainable. They, they want, they like this idea of flexibility, being able to move it if they want. Mm -hmm. um, are we going to move tiny houses around like do an RV? No. A camper, that's about to say, if that's your plan, then this is just me speaking, not Sprout. I would say get an RV. But I agree. The idea, if that, the idea, if you want to move it in four or five years, then you can. So people like that idea. Where I think it's going, and this once again is me, Rod can tell you, you know, I have to speak to where he thinks the company's going, but where I think the industry's going, we're already building the foundation into wheels. Particular development we're talking about, we're actually discussing of going back to foundation. And the reason why is, is because of financing. Right. We can get 30 year financing, traditional financing on a house, on a foundation and, and in RV or in, in tiny houses on wheels, the best we're getting because it's considered chattel and has a title and a VIN that the banks, there's two issues going around tiny houses when it comes to financing. First is there is no history of, of the type of the tiny house's value as it gets pulled off. Let's call it the lot. Yeah, there's no NADA. There's no, yeah, there's no NADA. Mm -hmm. It depreciates X amount of dollars. They know that they, they've got it figured into their risk profiles of the bank. And so they know how to handle that. What they don't have is history on the value of a tiny house. As soon as it pulls off or comes out of the manufacturing facility, what is it worth? What is it going to be worth in five years? What is it going to be worth in 10 years? And those type of things. So the banks don't know, don't know what they don't know yet. There's not enough history. There's no NADA on them, those type of things. And so they don't know what the resale is going to be. And because of that, they're not willing to take risks on how long they'll finance it. You can call an RV lender today. I, I just had a conversation yesterday and they're looking for 700 plus credit, 20% down, you know, because they don't have this history that they're looking for because they don't know how these units are going to last. And even though I'm telling it's built to 30 to 50 year materials, it's really a, it's a really a well-constructed house on a chassis. They're saying finding, finding, well, let's prove that out over time. It will. And then I think the financing will change in the next five years. You'll see a lot of financing opening up for this. Um, but goes to foundation. And if I'm trying to go to, if I'm trying to make this attainable and affordable for people, then being able to buy a house on a foundation at 80,000 and be able to amortize that over 30 years yeah. is, it makes it. Oh, it's a phenomenal. Maybe. Yeah, it and, does. Yeah. I mean, it's un unbelievable. And so, um, that's kind of what I think. I think this is once again, Alan speaking, not 
route is that we're going to get to these kind of homes that got that are built the best of both worlds. So they'll be built to be put on solitudes or foundation, or we call them stem walls, or you, can, you know whatever you put it on a pad, and then they're fixed to the pad so they can get traditional financing. But we'll design them that they'll be able to be at some point if they want they can. Uh, detach them from that foundation through a pin system or something like that and pick it up if they want, take it with them and go put it somewhere else. And I think you're going to see communities across the country that will allow those type of things. So you can pick up your, your home here, take it to another community where you're moving to and, you know, attach it to whatever foundational system they have type of thing. Or, you know, as we both, we all know that, you know, value of homes don't is not the actual house itself the value appreciates because of the land it's on so you know people may end up deciding that hey i'm just going to sell my house where it's at and go buy another one because there's going to be so many other communities around the country mm-hmm. that have small homes as mm-hmm. part of their as part of their um their communities and you'll just be able to go find another one well, it's been a really interesting uh, conversation and there's so much about Sprout that we have not covered. Um, it would be great to have you back on the show, Alan, if, if you can make that happen. I know it was hard to get you on, but... Um, yeah, I would love to. I okay. mean, there's just so much. It's exciting times uh, yeah. for the industry. It's, you know, part of what Sprout's doing is saying, hey, let's go lead in the industry finding a financing solution yeah. for the whole industry. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, it, it benefits everybody. Yeah. We, we love having you on the show. What, what are the chances of having you and the CEO at the same time, or maybe the CEO also in a different, in a, in a separate interview? Yeah, I'm sure Rod would love to be on. He's, he, you'd probably want to put him on the show just by himself because he's such a, you know, very interesting. He's got a, a great history. He's a, an incredible strategic thinker. Um, and so, you know, he can share a lot of what he his he's, his opportunities and what he's seen. He said on the um, governor of Colorado had a panel and asked Rod to sit on it because they were trying to figure out attainability and affordability and, and what was causing problems in Colorado um, when it comes to zoning and those type of things. And Rod was, was on that panel. And so um, there's a lot of stuff. Um, I think Rod would be fantastic. Okay. He's a great, a great guy to talk to. Okay, you got to put in a good word for us, though, so I'll mm-hmm. answer my email. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I will definitely get him on for you if you guys want him on okay, that would be great thank you thanks Alan and Tiny House listeners you've listened to another Tiny House podcast thank you so much for uh, being a faithful and loyal audience to us and tune in next week because we'll have yet another interesting group of people that we're going to be talking with really appreciate your your uh, tuning in to us Thank you very much. I I so appreciate the breadth and the width of our subjects, don't you? Yeah, pretty this interesting. Was great, this was a great conversation. Thanks, listeners. Be good to each other. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sitecast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever, you tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon.